Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Good morning. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the letter of Galatians. Uh, We left off there in November. We will now resume here at the beginning of February. Galatians chapter 4, and we're going to be in verses 8 through 20 this morning, and I'll begin reading for us. In verse 8, here Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back? again, to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness. An older version there says, of the blessing you felt. For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed In you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. All right. Let's pray together. (coughs) Lord, I pray that you would enable every single person who's gathered here this morning to feel the blessing of God. And not just to feel it, 
but to retain it. Grant that we would be a people who hold fast to the truth as it is in Jesus, that we would never drift away or desert the gospel. We plead for your grace in this matter, and we pray for your glory to be on full display right now. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm sure all of you like to read the Puritans. It's been a while. Uh, But to my mind, uh, John Flavel, Flavel, however you say his last name, is uh, he's one of the most useful and enjoyable reads among the old Puritans. That joy, however, doesn't keep him from being memorably and sometimes even brutally honest. And that's what he is when, on the rigors of gospel ministry, he writes this. The labors of the ministry will exhaust the very marrow from your bones. Hasten old age and death. If you'd have seen me five years ago, I was thin. And I had no white at all. Alas, gospel ministry. They are fitly compared, gospel labors, to the toil of men in harvest, to the labors of a woman in travail, and to the agonies of soldiers in the extremity of a battle. We, he says, must watch when others sleep. And indeed, it's not so much the expense of our labors as the loss of them that kills us. It's not with us as with other laborers. They find their work as they leave it most of the time. So do not we. Sin and Satan unravel almost all we do. The impressions we make on our people's souls in one sermon vanish before the next. How many truths have we to study? How many wiles of Satan to detect? How many cases of conscience to resolve? Yes, we must fight in defense of the truths we preach and study them to paleness and preach them unto faintness. Now, I don't quote Flavel to drum up a pity party for your pastors. I quote him to tell you, I think all that's true. Everything he said there, I think it's true. And to tell you that I think it's all worth it. It's all worth it. Just as he ends, not on a note of defeat, but in sort of a holy defiance against exhaustion. So Paul, in our passage, presses through the labor pains of gospel ministry, delivering a healthy church is worth all the labor pains. Do you know what our ambition is here at this church? It's to endure 
everything we must until Christ is formed in you. Is to labor together until we are very pregnant. Not with all the things that might create a buzz among more man-centered peoples, but with the one thing that verifies a God-centered people, specifically the truth, as we have it in the Lord Jesus Christ. His mind, His heart, His character, His gospel, He Himself formed in you. No pain outweighs That priority is what Paul says this morning. Let's see it in our text. Starting in verse 8, with Paul's fear, Paul's fear that these churches have turned away from the gospel. I told you a week ago that I have a fear as a pastor. And standing before Jesus on that last day, and having people that I pastored say they were surprised at just how glorious Jesus is. They were surprised at just how glorious His work was. Because I, in this life, in this world, had given them just enough Jesus to get by. That's not Paul's fear. Paul's fear is that having given them about as glorious a Jesus as one can give, the church finds that Jesus nothing worth holding fast. It's the plight and the pattern of old Israel. We want to go back. I know you redeemed us out, We've seen glorious things. We've seen the Red Sea. We've got the promised land right in front of us. But we want to go back. Take us back. We prefer that former slavery to this present freedom. We had it better then. That was living. That was the way to life. And that's what's happening here in the Galatian churches. And Paul is confounded that they cannot see what he does. It's wild to think. It's wild to think. But in receiving the teaching that you have got to be practically Jewish to be truly justified, or that you need to believe in Jesus, but then on top of that, you've also got to do Moses in order to be justified In receiving that teaching, they're returning to the ideological bonds, the chains, the shackles that they wore when they were lost in pagan idolatry. You can see it in verse 8. Formerly, when they didn't know God, they were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. Whatever its ritual or religious expression, they were ruled by demonic principalities working or operating behind the scenes. And that is true for every person, every person that's living under the power of sin this very moment. You say, that's very hyperbolic of you. 
But I would remind us one of the devil's greater schemes is convincing us all that he doesn't exist. I would remind us how Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that the reason a person is blind to the light of the gospel of Christ is because there is a real adversary behind the scenes doing the blinding. And to get a, get a better grasp of it here, let's just make some connections, okay? Some connections. So I want you to notice that the slave masters that they left behind in verse 8 are those to which they're returning in verse 9. Except that in verse 9, Paul says that their resubmission is to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. And if you were with us two months ago, we defined what that was. But it's been two months, so I'll just put the pieces together for us here and remind us. When we were dead in sin, we were slaves to a fallen world under the tyranny of a demonic realm that does everything in its power to keep us under its power. Which is to say, it all conspires best it can to block the eyes of your heart from the truth as it is gloriously in Jesus. And it can utilize overt paganism to do this, or overt Phariseeism. Intense religiosity is no problem for these demonic principalities. Only the gospel is. Because only the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. So, I want you to take special note of verse 10. Here, it's not even religion in general. This is what's so surprising in Galatians and so surprising in our passage. Paul's referring specifically to their observance of holidays or holy days specified in the Mosaic Covenant. So again, let's connect. In verse 8, when they were lost, they were slaves to demonic influence. In verse 9, they're returning to that slavery by adopting the gospel-canceling substitutes of this world. And in verse 10, one of those substitutes is keeping the Jewish calendar as if your observance was part, any part, of your justification with God. Paul is uncovering something the devil does not want them or you to see. It's a shocking revelation, really. If you believe that you can, to any degree, justify yourself with God, it doesn't matter if you're engaged in pagan sacrifices or observing the Day of Atonement detailed in Leviticus 16, it's all the same. A demonic distortion of the truth of the gospel. Dear ones, 
hear it loud and clear. We have no hope of justification except on the basis of all that Jesus Christ has done for us. Period. Rightly understood, Leviticus 16, Day of Atonement, it preaches that. But it gets at the thing that's exposed here. The things, all the things, the principles, weak and worthless principles of this world, all the things that hate your soul and would drag it to hell have no problem toying around with God, with Bible, with Moses, with law, with holy days, with Jesus. So long as they can twist it and convince you to your ruin, Jesus is not enough to save you. you got to help Him out. Faith in Him is necessary, but it's not all you need. It's not all you need to be right with God. Now, all of that may sound far off from us, but is it really? Is it far off from us to weigh our standing with God by our uprightness or lack thereof? There are principles at play there. Have you not ever made, I don't know, attending church an issue, not of sanctification, but of your justification with God? Might we not have viewed activity, doing all this stuff on the Lord's day, it's on the calendar, as indicative of one's spiritual state, whether they're lost or found or a greater or lesser Christian? Do we not have the habit today of practically turning back, practically repenting of the gospel truth we've all believed, I hope. Do we not have a habit today of creating terms of justification? Got to do this and this and this and this. Yes, believe in Jesus, but I got to do this and this and this and this. Of creating terms of justification that we can control and make ourselves feel like we are good enough. though all those terms are against the gospel truth we know. When we do this, and God forbid, begin to codify it and pass it along to other people, Paul would have us shocked awake again to the all-sufficiency of the grace of God to save us. It is no benign move we make in turning back to the message we used to believe when we were lost. I can be good enough. I must be good enough. And that the form is different doesn't matter when the lie is all the same. Paganism, Pharisaism. Doesn't matter. To forsake the justifying sufficiency of faith in Jesus is to forsake, verse 8, 
the knowledge of God is to desert the application of His eternal electing love. Verse 9. It's to depart from the freedom that Christ died to give to you. It's to depart from the fullness of His cross. It is finished. It's to depart from the sufficiency or the adequacy of His grace. If it's by works, it's not of grace. If it's by grace, it's not of your works. It's to depart from the divinity of the gospel. Man didn't make that. Man could never have created it or imagined it. And if that departure goes on without repentance, there's only one conclusion to make. And Paul comes to it in verse 11. There has been a very sad miscarriage. It's no inconsequential thing to believe we have to supply some lack in the cross of Jesus. If ever the thought creeps in, we're to instantly stamp that out. See in the passage, Paul is not afraid that they're just childish Christians. Paul is afraid that he may have labored in vain. Miscarriage. There is nothing more consequential than holding fast to the gospel. We lose the gospel, we lose our identity as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Paul's fear. Now Paul's grief. Paul's grief is that a people he had loved to the truth and who greatly loved him in the truth may now oppose him. Why? Because of the very same truth. The section picking up in verse 12 reads really as a broken heart. If I can sum it up for us, he reminds them in verse 13 how he came to preach the gospel to them at first. And it wasn't exactly because they were the, you know, the next place up on his missionary itinerary. It was a singular providence of God. Along Paul went, along he was walking, when his body went kaput. His body went lame. There's a lesson in that for us. Don't think your trials obstacles to ministry. They might be the means God uses to save so many people. I want you to see there that God likes to use our weaknesses in helping others to see Jesus. Paul's body stopped. And it just proved to be really the next stop in his labors for Christ. Sometimes God will stop us. Or He'll slow us down by trial because of people we might otherwise have walked on by, God wants to hear and receive the gospel. God wanted the Galatians to believe in Jesus. And so Paul's body 
pulled the reins right there in Galatia. It was because of an ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And that divine providence didn't come without divine provision. True to his missionary principles, see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and significantly here, Paul did not ask the Galatians, these Gentiles, to become Jewish when he was preaching Jesus to them. He didn't ask them to become Jewish in order to become Christians. On the contrary, Paul, the Jewish man, became as they were so that they might receive the Jesus that he preached just as he had. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. That's it. And the evidence suggested that's what they had done. How is it that they received this ill-bodied, Gospel-preaching Paul. You have to know uh, there's a good chance here that ill health in this culture signaled something bad or accursed about the person who was ill. It might have cast a stigma that Paul and his preaching were to be very aggressively, if not violently, discarded from the land. How did they receive him? Though his condition, he says, was a trial to them, they didn't despise him. They didn't reject him. Instead, it says in verse 14 that they received him as an angel of God and even as Christ Jesus. Assuming Paul's ailment dealt with his eyes, he says they would have gouged out their own eyes that he might have them and be the better for it. And so they proved to have this sort of instant, hospitable, self-sacrificial love for this laboring preacher of the gospel. And why is that? It reminds of something that Jesus actually said in Matthew 10, verse 40. Jesus said this, Whoever receives you, my disciples, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. Or later in Matthew 25, verse 40, where Jesus again says that kindness shown to one of my disciples, even if it's just a cold cup of water, is kindness shown to me. Because me and my people were one. You do that, what's being indicated is there is new spiritual life. Oh, friends, all of this hospitality towards Paul is really saying that the Galatians, in large measure, had believed the gospel that he preached to them. They weren't swayed by Paul's power and presence. That's for sure. He wasn't so charismatic or pragmatic. Paul here in our passage was ill, and he was ailing, and he was weak. He was, he says, a trial to them. And yet somehow, <laughs> without any of the things we might associate with a soul-winning, crowd-creating pulpit, 
and with all the things we might think cumbersome to it. Churches, not just Christians, whole churches were born throughout Galatia. And Paul's weakness was instrumental to it. God's power was made perfect in Paul's weakness. Listen, church, the person does matter, but it's the message of the gospel that saves. Let's not ever forget that. God sent the gospel to Galatia, and through the gospel, the Galatians were changed, and the change was greatly wrought. Again, not a Christian, a new one here and there, but churches. They widely repented of their sins, and believing on Christ alone for their justification with God, they left behind their former spiritual slavery. So in verse 15, Paul just says they, again, the older ESV version here, they felt the blessing. They've been blessed by God or received the blessing. What blessing is that? Do you remember? It's the blessing of Abraham. It's Galatians 3, verses 6 through 14. It's God's sovereign grace savingly applied. It's new birth. It's the faith that united them to Jesus. It's the labors of Christ's life and His death afforded to them. It's the forgiveness of sins. It's His standard righteousness, His perfect righteousness imputed or counted to them. It's eternal life. It's peace with God. It's qualification, amazingly, for heaven. It's the Holy Spirit's indwelling and His ministry within their heart. It's freedom from all the curse and all the bonds of unbelief. But we're speaking just now of Paul's grief. I don't know about you, but I I long for this kind of work. (laughs) I long for awakening. Don't you? Sometimes I can't sleep at night because my heart just bursts, especially on Saturday night coming into today. My heart just bursts to see Mm, like God, mightily working, taking the ordinary means of grace and using them extraordinarily in us and through us in this community. It's hard to fathom seeing that, only to see that, as in Galatia, attacked. And then to see those churches begin to fold under that attack such that they begin to toe proving abortive. From awakening to abortive. The historical accounts of such awakenings where they have to recount this person and this person and this person began to return 
to their former manner of life are exceptionally sad. They're so broken over them. And sadly, here Paul has his own uh, accounting to share. Again, verse 15. What then has become of the blessing you felt? What has become of your blessedness? How is it, verse 16, that Paul, who loved them to the truth and who they loved in the truth, they now presumably oppose because of the truth? What's happened? You need to know verse 17. If you want to learn the ingredients for apostasy, it's verse 17. They make much. Don't you want them to say, of Jesus? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out. Why? That you may make much of them. That's the kind of trading that loses the truth as it is in Jesus. Teachers who prefer their glory to Christ's glory fit through the cracks that we leave open in the doors of the church, and they come in, they begin to teach and win popularity, not by fidelity, not by faithfulness, but by flattery. And all the while, they're flattering, they're teaching a justification that's suitable to their self-righteousness. They're not preaching the gospel of Christ. It's, I'm great. you got to be like me. And that works out really well for them but not for the people. Because the people can never match up. In fact, they're shut out. But that's okay, because, well, at least I'm being flattered in the process. At least I'm being told how great I am or how righteous I can be, even if I can never be as great and righteous as these guys. Oh, yeah. And then there's Jesus, the righteous one. Can I please have you see what's nowhere to be found in verse 17? It's nothing to do about the greatness of God. It's nothing to do about the glory of Christ. There's not a word about the goodness of truth or the grace of the gospel but only, only of the unsubstantiated grandeur of the people. You're so great. No, you're so great. Why, yes, after a while, we are all so great, aren't we? And having established our greatness, let's not do or believe anything to lose that lie. And all in our power against whoever would dare oppose it by preaching the truth to us. Friends, the gospel is inherently offensive. 
Natural man does not love it. It takes a new birth to love it. Christianity, really, biblical Christianity is inherently offensive. Precisely because it takes the power and the merit to save entirely out of our hands. It makes the greatest of us in this world sinners begging God for mercy. In the most significant affair, how can I, how can they, how can you be justified before God? It makes the whole world, from the least of them to the greatest of them, absolutely dependent on the spectacular achievement of Jesus the Christ. Will you simply trust Him? That's the invitation. Man is not the center of this thing. Where he is, the only thing you'll find is the soul-destroying fluff of verse 17. You might see a door, but it'll be to show you out and not in. It'll open to men and their greatness, but not God. It'll open to merit, but not grace. And ultimately, it'll open to hell and not to heaven. And they'll show it to you, too, for praise. And it'll stroke your flesh. And it will keep you from the truth that saves your soul. What a grief for Paul that those who felt Christ's blessing have allowed it to be twisted into a message that only delivers on the curse and a militant blindness about the truth. Which is why we can never allow that to happen here. That's why we have to know the truth and we have to repeat the truth and then we have to defend the truth We have to defend the true center with every fiber of our being, whatever that makes of us. Don't care what the world says. I know what God will say. This brings us beyond Paul's fear and grief now to Paul's resolve. You read all this sometimes, and, uh, you know, Might we want to just count our losses and move along? It's not working in this town. On to the next. It's not not working in this church. On to the next. This pastorate is hard. On to the next. This person, I've been discipling them for days and weeks and months and years, and they just don't get it. On to the next. It's just too hard. The work is crushing. This soul is going nowhere as fast as I think they should. And I am grieved over it. 
But I want you to see how Paul continues in verse 18. He's not a stick in the mud. Paul's not against commending what is commendable. It's just that right now, there's nothing for him to commend about these churches. He can't, so he won't. He can't, so he won't. And that is a good and loving friend who would rather his nose be bloodied for the truth than brown nose to cover over a lie and keep you in it. You want people in your life who will care for your soul the way that Paul cares for theirs. You want people in your life who seeing you tumble off from the truth won't join you in the tumbling, but they won't leave you either. You want people in your life who will spiritually parent you and anguish over you because of labor pains. (laughs) And they will do it as long as it takes for Christ Himself to be formed in you. The more you have of those, the merrier you'll be. In being a fisher of men, Paul does not cut bait with any child, any soul he's ever presumably caught by the grace of God. He is not content with their decision for Christ. He's not content with their conversion. Well, pray to prayer. On to the next. He rejoices over those things, but he's not content with them. So much of Christianity today, I think, is just that. So much misinformed deciding, so little making of disciples in actuality. And God forbid they give us grief (laughs) or perplex our own sensibilities about what they should be and should be doing. They do that. You're on your own. Paul may have stopped to preach the gospel to the Galatians because of a bodily ailment. But as those Galatians believe the gospel, Paul will never stop laboring until Jesus is formed in them. Not just born, but formed in them. That's the goal. You need to know that. Spiritually speaking, it's that the born again would become spiritually adult. Do we understand this? And I ask that because I'm not sure it's obvious that God has saved us to make us like Jesus. Although the Bible says that everywhere. Do you know that you're supposed to grow? And are you eager to grow? There's not a day that passes in which my son isn't trying to measure up to me. It's coming. He wants to know where he stands. He wants to be as tall as me right now and then taller, like significantly taller. Every day he asks, Dad, do I look taller? 
I look bigger? Do I look stronger? And if I ever say, you look kind of the same. If ever there's a moment stall on the matter, he's, he's deflated. He expresses his angst about the thing, which is wonderful. He wants to grow. He wants to become a man. As he should. He's in earnest for it. But it doesn't happen all at once. And this applies spiritually. The apostolic target may start with delivery. But that's only the start of it. Jenny birthed Luke, and look, he's still here. Amazingly. 13 years later. Right there, at delivery, is where the labor, with all of its pains, actually really begins. What we want to bear here at this church is a congregation, a congregation of unflinching, unrelenting followers of Jesus. And we want to be unflinching and unrelenting in that resolve. We want to labor to grow you in Christ or to grow Christ in you. In the context of Galatians so far, we want you all, wherever you may be in the journey, to grow into the doctrinal truth of the gospel. The doctrinal truth of the gospel as well as the living testimony of the gospel. We want you to become fully convinced. A person is justified fully, not by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We want you convinced there. And we want you to become fully conscious and able to say with the Apostle Paul, which he wants for these Galatians as well, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You hear it? And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That is what Paul is after in the Galatians. And that is what we want to be after with each one of you together. And it's a work in progress. What it is, is a labor often filled with fear and grief and yet a labor still that's entirely worth it. No pain, no pain outweighs that priority for Paul. How resolved are we to labor 
for a church that's gloriously pregnant with the truth as it is in Jesus. Will our labors be able to be compared to those of a woman in travail? You ever been in that room? You have. So you'll get this. Let's breathe it through. Let's sweat it through. Let's cry it through. If we must, let's scream it through. So long as Christ is formed in you. Delivering a healthy church is worth all the fears and all the griefs it takes to get right there. That's our text. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, please help us now. We need you to teach us. So we look back over the last several minutes and we praise you for the things that you have been doing and now we come to the throne of grace again and ask for mercy to carry it on in each one of our souls. Help us to have a sense of the blessing that we've received because of the great grace of Jesus. And help us not just to feel it, but to retain it. (laughs) Please form your Son in us. We pray it in Jesus' name.